Today on Inside Politics, the Democratic nightmare before Christmas. Joe Manchin says he's retiring from the Senate, leaving a blue seat open in a very red state and leaving a lot of people wondering, what does the future hold for Manchin and does it include a run for president? Plus, the maid, the woodworker, the chauffeur and the plumber. Exclusive CNN reporting on who saw what a Mar-a-Lago, who saw what rather at Mar-a-Lago and how worried should Donald Trump be about what his employees would stay on, on the stand? And the House is a mess. That's how one senior GOP congressman summed up the new speaker's strategy to avoid a government shutdown. So what's Mike Johnson going to do with just one week to go until the country can't pay its bills? I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We begin today with a one-man political earthquake. Joe Manchin, he's shaken up the political world by announcing that he won't seek re-election. Republicans are rejoicing now that they're all but assured to pick up his seat in the Senate, which takes them one step closer to claiming the Senate majority. And there's also this. Manchin fanned Democrats' worst fears that he might run for president as an independent next year. What I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. We need to take back America and not let this divisive hatred further pull us apart. CNN's Melanie Zanona is live on Capitol Hill. Melanie, what are you hearing from your sources there? Yeah, well, this is a scenario that Democrats were dreading and Republicans were really dreaming about. But we are learning that GOP leaders worked very deliberately behind the scenes to actually try to make a mansion retirement into a reality. Sources tell CNN that Mitch McConnell personally recruited Jim Justice, the popular Republican governor, to run for the seat. And meanwhile, Steve Daines, the head of the Senate GOP campaign arm, got former President Donald Trump to endorse Jim Justice. So essentially, they were trying to make it as unattractive as possible for Joe Manchin to run again, at least for Senate. Now, there are still questions about whether Joe Manchin has some higher political ambitions. He has flirted in the past with the idea of running as a third-party candidate for president. It's something he has not ruled out. And the group No Labels, an event that he spoke at in earlier this summer, they're offering potentially a so-called unity ticket in 2024. So we'll see what Joe Manchin decides to do. But in the short term, no doubt, this is a massive blow for Democrats and their hopes of keeping the majority. Dana. Thank you so much for that reporting, Melanie. Appreciate it. I want to bring uh, this conversation here into the table. CNN's Jeff Zeleny, Julie Hirschfield, Davis of the New York Times and CNN's Eva McKend. Happy Friday to one and all for those who celebrate. (laughs) (laughs) What's a Friday? Exactly. What is a Friday? Uh, This is so fascinating on so many levels, what we saw happen with Joe Manchin. Let's just stick first and foremost with the immediate, which is the United States Senate. Um, You and I walked around those hallways many years ago together. Uh, for many years, we understand how seismic this is, I mean, we all do, for uh, what they're hoping to do in the in the Senate, which is the Democrats, which is keep control. Right. And they have a very small margin of control right now. This is already going to be a pretty hard year for them. They have competitive races in a lot of competitive states and red, other red states like Montana um, and, you know, some swing states like Arizona and Nevada and you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, these are all going to be hard races. And, and he was the last, Manchin was the last sort of foot to fall. 
everyone else had decided what they were going to do. And that it was a real coup for Democrats that John Tester and Sherrod Brown both decided they were going to run again, even though the terrain is so unfriendly there in their states. Um, this is something that Joe Manchin has been flirting with really for you know, the whole six years of this yeah. term, right? He almost didn't run again in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is, you know, it's, it's something that Democrats were thinking was a possibility, but were really hoping to avoid. And it just makes their climb that much steeper to keep control. Julie, you, you mentioned uh, smartly the terrain, the difficult terrain that Democrats are facing, not just in West Virginia, but in so many of these key uh, seats where Democrats are trying to hold on to their Senate seats. We have up there, I mean, West Virginia just to explain why we're saying it's a goner, very, very likely a goner for Democrats. Trump won there by almost 40 percent. And then uh, the states where there are Democratic incumbents running, like Montana, 16 percent, Ohio, 8, Arizona, was, was a bit closer. In fact, the rest were very, very close, even though they went for Biden. They were. And the question has always been, can the brand of these senators outstand or withstand all these headwinds? And his brand is as good as it gets in West Virginia, Joe Manchin. But he also knew this was going to be a very difficult race because of Jim Justice. He's the governor, uh, him and a baby dog, his dog who is at every press conference with him, and they've become part of the uh, culture there. So this was gonna be difficult. But uh, for all the Democratic complaining about Joe Manchin over the last several years about his dithering and his uh, deliberance, now they're going to see what it's like to not have him in the mm -hmm. Senate. And that is just the blunt reality of this. Now, all of those um, races up there on the maps are very interesting. John Tester and Sherrod Brown in Montana and Ohio, respectively, also have very good brands. Mm -hmm. So that is going to be a defining uh, story of the next year. But even if they both win, it is still Democrats have to run the table perfectly. Yeah. And uh, that's a tall, tall order. So let's let's turn back to Joe Manchin and what he's going to do. Eva, you've been doing a lot of work on potential third-party candidates, actual third-party candidates. Uh, the question is whether he's going to end up being one of them. I'm talking about a candidate for president of the United States. Um, we don't know. We do. What we do know is that a couple things. Number one, he said in that video that he released yesterday that he wants to go around the country and see if there's a middle. He's been talking about that. Anybody who's listened to Joe Manchin understands that he is very frustrated with the extremes in both parties, particularly his own. And he, he's very worried about the, the sort of raw politics in this country. He also really, really doesn't like Donald Trump. And so it's hard to imagine that he will do anything that will help reelect Donald Trump. But yeah, he loves also to be the center of attention and the topic of conversation. So that might be some of the motivation here to engage in this national tour. But it would be a tremendous uh, sacrifice. We know that during his Senate campaigns, he really relied on the Democratic apparatus for fundraising, that he wasn't a prolific fundraiser personally. So how would that play out? Who is funding you know, this last minute effort if he decides to enter 2024? Really quickly, just want to take a contrarian yeah. position on the panel. I do not think this is as immediately dire for Democrats as conventional wisdom assumes. Oh, interesting. Why? I think that this really stretches Democrats to invest in other places. Mm -hmm. So I just got off the phone with uh, Debbie uh, Merskel Powell's campaign. She's running in Florida. She thinks that she can really speak to Latinas in that state in the way that Senator Scott can't. 
And so Democrats will now really have to invest heavily uh, in these in these new candidates and in a way that, you know, they don't have to they can't rely on Senator Manchin anymore. Although the question is whether they will invest right when they have so much terrain to go uh, to go across. But that's a really interesting contrarian view. We love contrarian views here. Let's just talk about sort of why Democrats in particular, Joe Biden specifically, uh, is and should be worried about a third party run. Just one example of somebody who is not well known, Jill Stein, and what she did, the presence uh, that she had on ballots in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin back in 2016 did. Uh, The votes that she had from voters If they went to Hillary Clinton, it would have made the difference for her in those three states and Hillary Clinton would have been president. Right. Absolutely. I mean, any anything on the margins, uh, particularly on the margins toward the center, which is where Joe Manchin would be running, um, is going to be a problem for President Biden's reelection. He really has to worry about keeping the Democratic coalition together. We've already seen a lot of polling recently that is a very big concern to the White House. Um, They're trying to, you know, keep keep calm about it and, and keep focused on you know, the campaign to come. But clearly there is anxiety that he's not going to be able to unite the Democratic coalition. And anybody who is seen as a plausible alternative to him, but not Donald Trump or but not the Republican, um, is going to be a challenge. Okay, exactly right. Let's put a a, a name out there or some letters. RFK Jr. uh, There was a, a focus group that was run by the Third Way and they talked to Trump to Biden voters. So Trump 2016, Biden in 2020. And they talked about RFK Jr. Watch this. So it's a three-way race. Trump, Biden, and Robert Kennedy Jr. How many of you by a show of fingers in that race would take Trump? None of you. <coughs> How many of you would take Biden? One of you. How many of you would take Kennedy? I should say that was not the third way. That was done by Engages. Right. And the sentiment for those, these uh, third party candidates, uh, historically, the polling would show that they do better in polls than they actually do on Election Day because people don't necessarily uh, pull the trigger. Uh, Joe Manchin is a problem for President Biden theoretically here. But he's not on the ballot, and it's very challenging for him to get on the ballot. The no labels idea, they've already said they're going to put a Republican at the top of the ticket. So unless they change that, Mm. and all of us who have covered Joe Manchin, can we picture him as number two? Can we picture him? I asked one of his advisors this morning, (laughs) and he said, hell no. Hard no. So the reality here, Joe Manchin will travel across the country. I was in New Hampshire with him in July when he went up for that event. Even in, in politically astute New Hampshire, there's interest in Joe Manchin, but there's not. Uh, he hasn't sort of built this uh, momentum. So Jill Stein is a much yeah. bigger problem. And she is running. I mean, because I'm, she's on the Green Party and they're on the ballot. Yeah, that's exactly right. I went back to 2016, but we should emphasize that first it was Cornell West running mm-hmm. on the Green Party ticket. Now Jill Stein is doing it. He is still running. But the RFK situation, he he has the same challenge as anybody would who's not already on the ballot, like Green Party, to get on ballots. But let's just say he gets on one in a swing state. And some of that sentiment we just saw in that focus group holds. 
It's certainly not helpful, but I do wonder how many folks that do vote for these third-party candidates, how many of them wouldn't vote anyway. So if you are so dejected with the two-party system that you're then going to vote for a third-party candidate, it seems like the alternative for many of those voters is just staying home. Yeah. All right, everybody stand by. Up next, a maid, a plumber, a chauffeur. It's not a whodunit, it's who prosecutors may call to the witness stand to testify against their boss in Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago documents case. We have a CNN exclusive next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Just into CNN, the judge in Donald Trump's classified documents case has ruled the case will, in fact, go to trial in May. The former president has pushed repeatedly for the trial to be moved until after the election. But Judge Aileen Cannon's decision sets the case on a collision course with Trump's increasingly likely general election bid for the White House. This comes after CNN exclusively learned that a plumber, a maid, a chauffeur, and a woodworker from Mar-a-Lago may be called to testify against Donald Trump as part of that federal investigation. CNN's Caitlin Polans broke this story and joins me now with more. Caitlin. Dana, these people are people whom the prosecutors have already spoken with. They've Some of them they've brought to the grand jury and who they may be calling as witnesses to trial uh, to testify against Donald Trump. These are the types of people who may be able to really bring to life what Mar-a-Lago was like after the Trump presidency, where Donald Trump is there, there are boxes of documents there, there are stacks of papers uh, around the property, and there are people who are coming in and out, not just the regular staffers, political staffers, former White House aides of Trump who are there at Mar-a-Lago, who we've heard lots about, but there are also people who are temporary employees. This woodworker going in to install crown molding in Trump's bedroom and noticing stacks of papers that he thought were so unusual because of the markings on them that he thought that they were movie props. There are others, the chauffeur, there were people who were noticing things, people who are in the 
private spaces of Mar-a-Lago who certainly didn't have the security clearances needed. So the prosecutors could use these people, Dana, to really highlight how unsecured it was to have the nation's secrets at Mar-a-Lago in Trump's possession after the presidency. And Caitlin, what does your new reporting reveal about how the former president deals with the people who work for him, especially employees at Mar-a-Lago? Dana, I'm sure you won't find it as a surprise that Trump runs his club like it's his kingdom. He's the king. And he is very unhappy whenever prosecutors, investigators encroach on that territory. The two things that came out in this was uh, the one was that he went ballistic when he found out that the maid who cleans his bedroom suite, so the person cleaning both his and Melania Trump's private quarters, when that person was approached by investigators and that person, she is a possible witness here, uh, according to our reporting and our sources. He also was quite unhappy that one of the key witnesses in this case, a man who cut a cooperation deal with prosecutors, got rid of his Trump-provided attorneys and got a new lawyer, he kept working there at Mar-a-Lago until just recently. And when Trump found out he was resigning recently, he was quite unhappy that this person had stayed on. Prosecutors are very likely looking to see how Trump is responding to these people and if he's trying to talk to them about this case. I'm sure they are. Such excellent reporting, as always. Really, really interesting. Caitlin, thank you. And our panel is back now. We're also joined by Karen Friedman Agnafilo, CNN legal analyst and former chief assistant district attorney in the Manhattan DA's office. Karen, I'll start with you. What do you make of Caitlin's reporting? I think this is very common for prosecutors. It's kind of prosecutors 101, especially when you're dealing with very wealthy people who have staff. And very wealthy people who have staff sometimes treat them as if they're just not existent, right? They're just sort of the silent witnesses who who they don't even realize they're talking in front of or, or doing things in front of. And so it's very common in a situation like this for a prosecutor to expand their investigation to try to speak to those individuals to see if they overheard or saw anything unusual. So it's not surprising that this is what Jack Smith is doing. And I think they could be very valuable witnesses who were privy to things that people don't even realize they were privy to. I'm sure they've been privy to a lot of things. Uh, maybe this is just the tip of the iceberg. This, of course, is playing immediately on the campaign trail. And Chris Christie, who reminds us that he is not only a former friend of Donald Trump, but a former federal prosecutor, uh, was talking to uh, Caitlin Collins last night. And here's what he said. I think what you're seeing is just how thorough Jack Smith's investigation has been and that there's no one who has seen or heard anything at Mar-a-Lago regarding these documents who is going to be um, immune from testifying if they believe they have relevant information. I mean, it's remarkable. Like, all of this is happening. It seems like Trump is taking incoming from all sides, and he's simultaneously campaigning and using all of this to fundraise. Um, something that I have found remarkable in recent days is his response to all of this. He's uh, again called for the weaponization of institutions if he is reelected. I mean, that really allows Democrats to continue to make an argument that they have long wanted to make, that he is a threat to our democracy. He do it does, but it also gins up people who he has convinced for, what, eight years now? More? Uh, that... He's, it's happening to him now, it could happen to you 
sort of regular non-billionaire, non-presidential candidate tomorrow. And so let's just hear a little bit of what he's been saying that you mentioned, Eva, about the weaponization, quote unquote, of DOJ. They've weaponized the Justice Department. They've weaponized the FBI. And they've come at me with the worst indictments. If they want to follow through on this, uh, yeah, it could certainly happen in reverse. It could certainly happen in reverse. What they've done is they've released the genie out of the box. They have done something that allows the next party. I mean, if somebody, if I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. Mostly, that would be, you know, they would be out of business. They'd be out. They'd be out of the election. In my case, uh, it was, they were such pathetic indictments. Okay, just to be clear, I just want to say it again. Jack Smith is not Joe Biden. Jack Smith is, according to him and to the Biden White House, staying as separate as he possibly can, entirely possible, uh, entirely separate, rather, from the president of the United States. He is saying he would not do that. And the Fulton County DA and all the other cases as well, this has nothing to do with the Biden administration. What uh, the former president has been somewhat successful, at least among his base, in doing is blending everything together and saying that this is his opponent going after him. You'll remember why he got in in the first place last fall, because he knew that these indictments were coming. This is all part of the plan to uh, sort of set this up. But it's extraordinary what the former president is saying there, that yes, he in fact would um, use his DOJ. And one of his biggest regrets and frustrations, we all remember, is picking Jeff Sessions as his first attorney general. <laughs> when he recused himself that day, I remember that afternoon very well. He was furious about that. So that has set this into motion that, yes, he would do this. So this goes well beyond saying the quiet part out loud. I mean, he's just admitting um, exactly what he would do. Absolutely. And it's two things, really, right? Because by saying these things, he's undercutting the whole premise of the prosecutions against him, right? This this is a way of saying this is all political. This is not legitimate. uh, There's nothing to this. But he's also messaging to his own supporters and to people he wants to be his supporters that if he gets back into office, he's going to take revenge, he's going to retaliate. We've already seen, We have, my colleagues at the Times have reported that he's looking for lawyers who will not say no to him. He had a lot of lawyers, including Jeff Sessions, but also White House lawyers and others in his administration who said no to him on some of the most extreme things he wanted to do. He is looking for lawyers who will not do that the next time. So he is telling people exactly what he plans to do, both to sort of insulate himself against the charges he's facing and to build up his support. and. There is a lot of evidence that that is working to really motivate Republicans. You hear Republicans on Capitol Hill repeating it. It's an it's an element of all of their campaigns that the Justice Department is weaponized against the yeah. right, and it could be a pretty powerful tool for Karen. Them. What, what are you weighing? Independent voters, you know, independent voters hear this, and and then what? Right? They are going to be worried about our institutions, even if they are cool on the White House, cool on this administration and domestic policy matters. You hear that he's ready to burn down the House. You want to vote for him again? Karen, I want to bring you in on this notion of uh, weaponization of the Justice Department. This isn't something, again, that he's saying. Well, he is saying it's happening against him without evidence. But more importantly, he's promising to do that if he is president again. Yeah, that's one of the most dangerous things that he has said 
frankly. There has to be a separation between politics and the justice system. There always has been. It's why, for example, Joe Biden, when there was, when his own son, Hunter, was being investigated, he said, you know what, I'm going to separate this out and I'm going to keep a Trump-appointed United States attorney, David Weiss. I'm not going to put my own person in. The fix shouldn't be in. These should be totally neutral so that people won't, will, will trust the investigation. I'm going to keep the Trump United States attorney in, who's now special counsel, right? This is a tradition in all of uh, prosecutions. And, you know, justice has to be blind. It has to be without fear or favor. And if he's going to actually actually weaponize the Justice Department, unlike it's not weaponized now, he's just saying it is. Mm -hmm. But if he's going to do that, that's a very, very going to be a very dark and dangerous time for America. The justice system has to be blind. Karen, thank you so much for that. Thank you, everybody here. Congress only has one week left to prevent a government shutdown, but the House and Senate have already gone home for a long holiday weekend. Can they beat the clock? We'll go live to Capitol Hill next. Once again, Congress is preparing for a potential government shutdown. Lawmakers have one week before current funding expires, and the two chambers are headed for yet another federal funding fight. CNN's Lauren Fox is live on a very quiet Friday on Capitol Hill. Congress has gone home for a long weekend. Uh, it is a holiday, but if there's a deadline coming up, I, I think, feel like every time this happens, I ask you this question. Where are they? Yeah, I mean, it almost feels like they want to get down to crunch time because that kind of pressure may be the only way for them to get united. Now, Dana, we are getting our eyes all on Mike Johnson, the newly minted House Speaker, and what he's specifically going to do when it comes to the House Republican plan to fund the government, because we simply do not know the answer to that very basic question right now one week out. We expect that we could see legislative text tomorrow. That is because if lawmakers want to vote on Tuesday, then they need to put that text out publicly so that their members can review it for the 72-hour rule. That is a rule within the Republican conference. But right now, there are really two options that Johnson has. One of them is to do this two-step approach where some government agencies run out of money on one date, other government agencies run out of money at a later date. That is something that a lot of even Senate Republicans have said really doesn't make a lot of sense, but it is something that hardliners are pressuring Johnson to get behind. Meanwhile, veteran appropriators have been arguing behind the scenes to the newly minted speaker that the best path forward is to do a short-term spending bill that is as clean as possible, maybe attach something like Israel aid to it or a debt commission, send it over to the Senate and make the argument that you had some small victory, but save that broader spending fight until January. Dana? I mean, talk about a prescription. Like, we're already going into chaos and a prescription for chaos uh, in a very, very sprawling federal government trying to keep the, uh, the trains running it with that kind of idea. Hard to imagine that that's a workable solution, but... I guess that's where we are. Lauren, thank you so much for that great reporting. And amid a cascading conflict in the Middle East and the grinding war in Ukraine, President Biden is looking to prevent another global crisis from exploding on his watch. For only the second time in three years, the president is set to meet with the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. That will happen on Wednesday. CNN's Arlette Signs is live at the White House with details. Arlette, it's a pretty big deal. 
It is, Dana, and President Biden will be facing a key test as he sits down with President Xi Jinping of China next week on Wednesday in the San Francisco area. The president is looking to prevent an already fraught relationship from deteriorating even further. Now, this meeting is the month uh, comes at the after months of uh, negotiations and talks behind the scenes between people here at the White House and across the administration uh, with their counterparts in China. And it's not expected that there's going to be any type of immediate or major thaw in U.S.-China relations uh, right after this meeting. But officials say that the fact that they are having the sit-down meeting face-to-face, -face, uh, that it, that is a positive step in the direction of this relationship. What officials are hoping is that they will be able to leave this meeting uh, being able to lay out the groundwork for a possible framework for how they could maintain this competitive relationship with China, with part of the goal being trying to clear up any misperceptions or avoid any surprises. Now, officials uh, have said that the president is ready to raise a host of issues, one of those being the president wants to reestablish the military-to-military -military communications between the U.S. and China, which have currently uh, been upended. The president also is expected to discuss the conflicts in Israel and Russia at a time when the U.S. has really uh, hoped that China could take a more constructive role in those efforts. And they've also said that the president is ready to ch uh, challenge uh, President Xi Jinping on issues where they disagree, including human rights issues, as well as Taiwan and China's military aggression in the South China Sea. Of course, this meeting is also playing out against the backdrop of a tumultuous times across around the world with the conflict in Israel as well as Ukraine. But the president is hoping that this meeting will help them inch forward to a bit more stability in, in the relations between the U.S. and China. Arlette, thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. And as the Israel-Hamas war continues, Anti-Semitism is happening in a very, very intense way. A tsunami is the way experts describe it. It's happening around the world and here in the U.S. Next, we're going to speak with an Ohio congressman who recently canceled one of his town halls because he was getting threats, threats made against the Jewish community. We'll be right back. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Never again was the message last night in Germany, as it is every year on the anniversary of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, when Nazis murdered and terrorized Jews, destroyed their homes, shops, and synagogues. But 85 years later, as the Israel-Hamas war rages, anti-Semitic acts are exploding around the world, including here in the U.S. Just one example a congresswoman from Texas whose district office was vandalized over her support for Israel. Republican Monica De La Cruz posted photos of her district office in Texas spray-painted with anti-Israel graf graffiti this week, and she said that the incident is under investigation by local law enforcement. Congressman Greg Landsman of Ohio had to cancel a town hall last week over security concerns, and he joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. I just want to get you to react to the moment we're in. Uh, as I mentioned, that you had to cancel your town hall. You saw what happened to your colleague in Texas uh, at her at her office, and there's so much more. 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to reschedule our town hall because it's so important for people to get together and talk and ask questions and, and, and be part of a, a, a conversation uh, with their, uh, you know, member of Congress, but, but also with folks in the community. And, you know, these town halls have been so incredibly helpful as a new member of Congress mm -hmm. to build trust and make sure we're getting, you know, good feedback and, and building good relationships. The, the challenge is the rhetoric is so dangerous and uh, local law enforcement, you know, just called it, uh, d you know, the, the day before and said, hey, we, our recommendation is, is for, for you to cancel, otherwise people could get hurt. And we saw, uh, you know, a, a, a 70 year old man uh, beaten uh, mm -hmm. at a protest uh, with a bullhorn, uh, you know, uh, a Jewish guy. Uh, so it's, and, and, and we're seeing folks across the country and the world dealing with an enormous amount of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, and it gets dangerous and it's violent. And it's so important for us to appreciate that we are in this together, yeah. uh, particularly Jews and Muslims uh, here and in the Middle East. You uh, were one of 22 House Democrats to vote to censure Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib for her comments about Israel. Why did you decide to do that? And have you had conversations with your colleagues who voted no? Yeah, so I've talked to uh, a lot of my colleagues, and including uh, Rashida Tlaib. She and I have, uh, you know, uh, to be honest, wept together, um, you know, many times the last couple of weeks because she's an enormous amount of pain. She's Palestinian. Her grandmother lives in the West Bank. Uh, and I have an enormous amount of empathy for what she's going through, and she has an enormous amount of empathy, I, I believe, for what uh, we're going through, too. And I wish the country could see more of that. Uh, mm. I think it would be helpful for people to see more of that. It would. The, 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 the River to the Sea piece uh, was obviously a bridge too far for uh, many of us because of how dangerous and violent uh, it is. It, it, it is. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it means uh, the annihilation of the state of Israel and the expulsion or, or murder of Jews living in Israel. Now, uh, you know, there's about 15 million Jews, 16 million Jews. They live in two countries, right? We, we you know, 80% of us live either in the United States or Israel. So you're talking about an existential threat. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more terrifying than uh, streets of, of, of people chanting river to the sea yep. and then for uh, her to sort of normalize it by saying, hey, no, it's, it's, it's something else is even more terrifying uh, that this, this is how it spirals out of control. Now, uh, the, uh, you know, there are a group of Republicans on the far, far right who introduced a bill yeah. uh, to expel Palestinians. Well, I want to ask you about that. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, forgive me for interrupting you, but uh, this was Ryan Zinke, uh, Republican yeah. congressman, uh, he, ten Republicans signed on to this to expel certain people with Palestinian passports from the U.S. I know you have a, a sort of a countermeasure. Why is that so important to you? It's the same reason why I pushed back or felt like we needed to push back on the river to the sea language, uh, which is to say, hey, that's not okay. Let's, let's turn the temperature down uh, so that uh, more folks don't get hurt. The same is true for this. Uh, you know, talking about expelling 
a, a group of people from the United States is un-American. Mm. It's very dangerous. Uh, it's not hope, hopefully what this Congress is about. And so I want this Congress on record uh, saying that that's not who we are. And so hopefully we will get a vote this week uh, and hopefully it'll be a bipartisan vote uh, condemning mm -hmm. uh, what they've done here uh, because it's so dangerous. We don't expel people uh, from the United States. That's not who we are. It's also, as a Jew, it's so offensive, mm -hmm. the idea that we would expel anyone from anywhere. Yeah, well, well said. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's really great to talk to you. Thank you, Dana. And this Sunday, I investigate anti-Semitism in America on The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. According to the FBI, nearly 60% of religious hate crimes were against members of the Jewish community. That's barely 2% of the population, and that was before October 7th. Since then, threats and violence against Jews, especially on college campuses, are boiling over. I talked to one student who was assaulted. Violence erupted when a pro-Palestinian demonstrator in the back of a pickup truck started to light an Israeli flag on fire. A student on the Jewish side, he ran and he tried to get back the flag to save it from being burned. There were two kids in the back of the truck. One was holding the Israeli flag and one was holding a Palestinian flag on a very large pole. Once the Jewish student was able to retrieve the flag back, he started getting bashed over the head repeatedly with that pole. And when I saw that, that's um, when I ran in, I was trying to just get him out of the situation. Then Dylan was beaten and attacked by two older men he says were not college aged. I was completely blindsided by a man with a megaphone who hit me very viciously over the nose, which broke my nose. I went into complete shock. I went, I, you know, I went deaf for a couple seconds. It, like, I seemed like I went blind maybe for a second. You can hear more from Dylan and many other voices in my special report, The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. It's on that show, and uh, I try to explain not just what is happening to American Jews, but why. There's this Sunday at 9 p.m., only on CNN. Ahead, the FBI is investigating suspicious letters possibly laced with fentanyl sent to election offices in six states. What's behind that and why? We'll talk about it next. Election officials across the country are on high alert today as the FBI investigates suspicious letters sent to multiple election offices. California, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, Texas, and Georgia were all targeted and were told some letters may have been laced with fentanyl, which could be lethal. CNN's Nick Valencia is covering the story. Nick, what are you learning? Yeah, this is really chilling stuff, Dana, and all of them seemingly connected, according to investigators who are treating all of these letters, more than 12 of them sent to at least six states as if they are all connected. And hopefully with the evidence that they have so far, they'll be able to narrow in on a suspect. One of the elections offices that was targeted right here in Georgia, Fulton County, and Fulton County has been in the news a lot lately. Of course, it is one of the sites where the former president was indicted, and it's drawn uh, the ire of the former president, as well as been a target of election denial and far-right conspiracy theorists. Of course, all of this is happening amid a backdrop of political tension, a harassment towards election officials nationwide, not just here in Georgia. And it was yesterday at a press conference that the Fulton County Commissioner, Rob Pitt, said, in his personal opinion, this may be a forerunner to what we should all be prepared for in 2024. We could only hope, Dana, that he is wrong. Dana? 
Absolutely hope that. Uh, thank you so much, Nick. And join me on State of the Union this Sunday. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is going to be joining me along with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan. I hope to see you Sunday at 9 a.m. Eastern right, on, right here on CNN. Thank you so much for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after a break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.